Welcome to Behind the Bench with AJP Hart and Sirk. I'm Kara Hansel Keehan. Listeners, today we're going to talk with Dr. Jody Greeny, lead author of a new study published recently in AJP Heart and Circ on short-term salicylate treatment improves microvascular endothelium-dependent dilation in young adults with major depressive disorder. Joining me is Dr. Charlotte Usselman, our returning Behind the Bench co-host, and her new Behind the Bench co-host, Dr. Tommy Martin. Today's episode is full of connections. We first met Tommy Martin when we interviewed him for a past episode of this podcast last year. Tommy had previously trained with the original Behind the Bench co-host, Dr. Jonathan Kirk. Fast forward to today's episode and Dr. Jody Greeny and returning co-host Dr. Charlotte Usselman have been friends for years. Dr. Greeny, welcome. We are excited to talk to you. Your research caught our eye and we can't wait to learn more. Charlotte? Welcome, Jody. You know, I love when you like click on a really interesting paper and you're like, ooh, this is cool. And then you look at who did it and you're like, hey, Jody. So um, I would say first and foremost, your research was awesome. But then second, I was like, Jody's the best. We should get her on the podcast. So welcome to the podcast, Jody. Thank you. So maybe you can um, walk us through a little bit. What was the nature of the study and what did you find? Sure. We had done some work in adults with depression, looking at mechanisms of vascular dysfunction. And in our original series of studies, we showed that vascular superoxide drives reductions in nitric oxide bioavailability and impairments in endothelium dependent dilation in young adults with major depression. And so we know that there's an intimate link between oxidative species and inflammatory cytokines and inflammation in general. It it really is kind of a a vicious feedback loop. They can each activate the other and leading to some downstream sequelae that are bad for vascular health, right? So as a little side project, we decided to take a first stab at trying to understand the upstream mechanisms of increased vascular superoxide um, and inflammation seemed a reasonable place to start. There had been a number of studies from Doug Seals's lab using oral salsalate, this very short-term treatment to kind of tease out mechanisms of vascular dysfunction And for those who know me, I don't like to reinvent the wheel. So since he and his team had really established this experimental protocol and and it worked really well in his hands, I said, well, we'll just do this exact same thing. Uh, And that's kind of where, where we landed. Yeah, I thought the paper was really interesting. My question, I guess the first question, kind of more generic, uh, which is why vascular function and depression? What led to your interest in this area? And kind of, I guess, from that stem of this paper. So it's becoming more and more clear that depression is a non-traditional risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Um, and, and, you know, certainly the mechanisms mediated in that link are multifactorial and likely very complex. But I think it's reasonable that, to suppose that vascular dysfunction is one mechanism linking depression to cardiovascular disease risk. And so that's kind of where we came in. 
Yeah, that's very cool. And I kind of was thinking, does vascular dysfunction lead to depression? Or is there something about depression that precipitates vascular dysfunction? Or, or can we not simplify it that much? Well, I mean, that's an excellent question. I think about it all the time. So the short answer is yes, vascular dysfunction can precipitate the development of depression. Those studies to date have mostly been in older adults. So there's this whole idea, kind of big picture idea. It's called the vascular depression hypothesis. But all of that literature is in the context of aging. Um, and so I don't think we know yet whether vascular dysfunction can cause or initiate depressive symptoms in young, otherwise healthy adults. But I think we, well, my lab, we in general all the time think about there's some disease and the arrow points to cardiovascular disease. And we never really think about the fact that maybe that arrow goes in the other direction or more likely than not is actually bi-directional. The bi-directional stuff is incredibly interesting to think about and incredibly challenging to study experimentally. So I have another um, sort of broad scope question. Was this your first time working with individuals with major depressive disorder? And what's it like working with that population? Because I've always heard stories from researchers saying, you know, this is a really tricky population to study. They can be difficult people to get into the lab, um, finding people who aren't medicated, that kind of thing. So yeah, what was your experience working with the population? Yeah. So I've been saying, you know, I've been studying adults with depression for the past six or seven years at this point. And I say to everybody that it's very sad to me how easy it is to recruit these young adults. Um, I was really, when I first started my postdoc, I, we were studying adults with high blood pressure and those participants were impossible to recruit. I, it was really challenging to find adults who had high blood pressure in the absence of any other cardiovascular disease, comorbidity, you know, smoking, hypercholesterolemia, those sorts of things. So when I started branching out into adults with depression, I anticipated having the same struggles. And it was really astounding to me how easy it was to get adults with depression into the lab. So anecdotally, I think that happens for two reasons. The first is that mental health and mental illness themselves are becoming a bit less stigmatized. Like certainly in society at large, we read about it more in, you know, periodicals like the New York times, the Washington post, like the lay public is becoming more aware. And I think that a lot of people actually responded to our recruitment advertisements, looking for confirmation of their symptoms from somebody that had expertise in it, but was just one step below seeking actual clinical care with a psychologist or a psychiatrist. So I think that was part of it. The other thing is um, when I began these studies, I was at Penn State, um, which is an academically rigorous undergraduate institution. Plenty of students um, who volunteered for the study were you know, double majors or wanting to go to medical school, or, you know, or they're just like overloaded, it, it, period. I, I don't know how they do that. That's not what it was like when I was in college. And I just think the prevalence rates are, if anything, even higher than what the epi literature would tell you. 
So that was a bit of a long-winded answer on the recruitment side. Once we got them into the lab, many of them were, I'll use the word like high functioning, right? I mean, on the one hand, they have depression. The severity was on the, the moderate side and even in some cases, mild to moderate. So I think that was part of it, but certainly it, it, it did take some getting used to generally speaking, like the, the affect and mood are very different. And, and a lot of times the adults with depression were withdrawn. They're quiet. They didn't ask a lot of questions. They just let us as researchers do whatever we needed to do, which in some ways can be a little bit off-putting, right? We're, we're poking things into them. We're infusing drugs. We're asking them to do things that are way out of the, their ordinary life experience. And they just kind of sat back and let it happen. So that was, it took some getting used to, but yeah. I was just going to ask um, as follow-up then, how about finding the controls without depression? Did you um, have people that came in, thought they, they were a healthy control? And then in your interview, you realized, ooh, this person has symptoms of major depressive disorder. That may have happened a handful of times, but actually fewer than you would expect. We did exclude a bunch of people for some other comorbid psychiatric illness. So a lot of people did end up getting excluded. The control group of adults who were non-depressed had no evidence or history of any major psychiatric illness. So, that, so we did the best that we could with those folks. Um, it was always very disconcerting when I had to tell people that they did not qualify for the study because it, they may, they indicated yes, or they may have some other sort of psychiatric illness because I am not a clinician. I do not pretend to be a clinician. And those conversations were always, and they still are very uncomfortable to me. Yeah. I can imagine that would be not the easiest to, to relay that information. I had uh, a couple of questions on controls actually, now that this kind of came up. And the first was that so thinking of vascular function and, and the, just the general things with our habits or lifestyle that might impact the vasculature, such as diet or exercise, um, were you able to get data on patients, I guess, physical activity levels? Like, did you have like some patients that were like super athletes or were like just fanatics about exercise? Does that feel like that, at least in my mind, I was thinking maybe they had different vascular function at baseline if, if that was the case. So those are good questions and they come up on review all the time. We do get um, an index of habitual physical activity. We use the IPAC, which I know is limited because it's self-report, but I mean, at least in terms of trying to do our best to make sure that we don't have any elite endurance athletes or slugs, <laughs> they fill out that survey and the groups were not different in met minutes per week, which to me was okay. It was good enough, but certainly I know you started your question by thinking about the healthy non-depressed group, but I actually think of it in terms of adults with depression. Instead, we know that there are a lot of behavioral maladaptations that are also associated with mood disorders and mental health illness. So sedentary behavior, um, substance abuse, or misuse, nicotine, those sorts of things that come along with um, mental illness for myriad reasons, right? But we do our best to control for that to the extent that we can. Yeah, and I, I can imagine it would be 
kind of difficult to fully control in a, in a human population where I'm coming from much more familiar with the like animal-based studies where you can very easily make these controls, but I can see it being very difficult in that setting. Um, so you mentioned in the paper kind of focusing on NF kappa B, which is downstream of salicylate or kind of a, a target to mediate that nitric oxide uh, level. NF kappa B mediates inflammatory signaling in the vasculature. And I guess my root question would be, would you say that depression at its core could be characterized as an inflammatory disease? There, that's another really good question. I would say maybe. So there is evidence that inflammation is characteristic of adults with depression. I feel pretty confident in saying that, but it's also variable. The etiology of depression is incredibly variable. So whether or not inflammation drives depression or the other way around is just very different person to person. I feel okay saying that one of the flaws of this study, which was also noted by the reviewers on, on peer review, was that there was no indication that inflammatory cytokines were upregulated in young adults with depression. So I think it's easy to say, well, like, why are you studying inflammation if inflammation doesn't exist in these adults? And, and our answer to that, which I feel confident in saying, is that we were really targeting mechanisms within the vasculature. We were not necessarily trying to see what this anti-inflammatory treatment did systemically. The, the adults who had the most severe impairments in endothelium-dependent dilation to begin with were those who responded most favorably with improvements in vascular health following this very short-term salicylate treatment. I just want to jump in and say that I really appreciate that you were comfortable talking about what reviewers found to be, I'm not going to say flaws, but I just say limitations in your work. And I think that it's a really good point for all researchers, but especially for early career researchers and postdocs and trainees to, you know, hear someone who's established in her career say that there are limitations and that re that reviewers had concerns and that you overcame them and you addressed them and then you went on to get published. Can I ask you to talk about that for a second? Sure thing. Well, I can tell you that the other limitation of this manuscript is that we did not show an effect of salicylate to knock down inflammation on a systemic level. So I, I think those were the two critical limitations of this very small, really proof of concept study. And so we submitted the results of this study for publication way back in 2019. Um, the manuscript ended up getting rejected. And those were the two criticisms, the two biggest criticisms of the reviewers. And we got the reviews back. And I said to my co-authors, Lacey Alexander and Erica Saunders, I was like, that's it. These are fatal flaws. We cannot address this. We can't fix it. I, it's a major problem with the study. I don't see any way around it. And so I just sat on the manuscript for a long time, really thinking about what I was going to do with it. There was a point where I said to Lacey, I'm, I don't think we should publish this. Let me turn it into pilot data for a bigger grant submission. Maybe that's the better way to make this work. And this was happening right when I had moved to Texas and was trying to get my lab up and going. And you know, there's just a million other things going on. I didn't feel like dealing with figuring out what I was going to do with this manuscript that I wasn't in love with because the reviewers 
pointed out the flaws that I knew existed going in and that I was like most prepared to get. And then COVID happened and went on forever. So after about the first year of COVID, Lacey said to me, she's like, you really should try to get that out there and do something with it. It's a good study. There's ways to address those two limitations by putting them in context and just really explaining that we were doing this to target mechanism and how is NF-kappa B signaling related to superoxide production in the vasculature in adults with depression. And so that's the way that we approached it. And then I've been chuckling ever since that, you know, that you guys selected this to be a part of this podcast. And in the back of my mind, I'm like this freaking manuscript of all the ones I've published. It's getting So I, yeah. It's always the way. It's always the thing that you're, you don't expect to be a success as a success. I often actually find these sort of small papers to be the most interesting, you know, the big ones, I guess the big clinical studies where it's whatever you've got hundreds of people or whatever it is, they're interesting, but I find these are the ones that I find us journal clubbing and really diving into because I think they're more interesting. They bring up a lot of questions. So, um, yeah, kudos to you for pushing through this jokes and, um, Something that we talked about when I was on Behind the Bench way back in the day that I would love to pick your brain about. So who is Lacey? Can you walk us just really quickly through? So what was your position at the time when you collected this data? And then you mentioned you're in Texas now. So walk us through that sort of big life transition that coincided with this paper. So when these studies were conducted, really conceived, initiated, and completed, I was a postdoc at Penn State working in Lacey Alexander's lab. And then I moved in January of 2019 to the University of Texas at Arlington for a faculty position. So the publication of the results occurred while I was at my position in Texas, but the entire study was conducted at Penn State and and completed there. So you analyzed all the data where you were at Texas or you had some of them analyzed before you came? It was analyzed before I came. Oh, okay. Nice. Good. Cause I was a real slacker with actually getting papers out once. Cause like you said, it's really busy. So, you know, what was your experience starting up the new lab and try, you mentioned having to balance things and pushing. It's really hard when you want to get a paper out, you know, that you just want it off your desk and out into the world. But then, you know, on the other hand, you're like, I'm really busy and I want to build my own lab. So how was that balance? So when I was a postdoc, I also worked very closely with Larry Kenny, and and certainly early in my postdoc career, I did a number of projects, really a whole series of studies with Larry and Lacey together in kind of the thermoregulation world. And Larry and I operate very similarly. The data are collected and analyzed as close to in real time as possible so that when data collection is complete, I don't know, four or five, maybe six days later, there's a draft manuscript in hand. And then it's turned around pretty quickly. One of the things that Larry is very good at is I'd say if I sent him a draft manuscript or Ames page, I'd have comments back from him, if not that day, definitely within 24 hours. He's unusual in that regard, I know. The other nice thing is once reviews came back in, it really was kind of a drop everything, address these reviews and turn it around, which works 
usually, unless you have to do a couple additional experiments or collect new data, of course. But by and large, I really fell into that routine over the five or six years, seven, eight years of working with Larry. And so when I was leaving Penn State to come to Texas, it was very important to me to close as many loose ends as possible. And so all of the data that I had ever collected at Penn State were analyzed when they came with me. And I think nearly everything was published. I I was fortunate in that regard because yes, starting a faculty position is not easy and data analysis and manuscript writing are the easiest things to fall to the bottom of the priority list. And especially for, well, for both of those things, really, to me, the further removed I become from the project itself, the harder it is to keep my mind engaged and interested. So, and the example, honestly, is this manuscript, how I said I let it sit for two years. It really did. I had to overcome a lot of inertia when I revisited it to try to get it back out into into the reviewer's hands. One of the things you just said was how like, obviously difficult it is to make the transition to become faculty going from a postdoc as a postdoc myself. And I know a lot of people who listen to this podcast will be early career scientists. What would you recommend or is there anything that you said would maybe really helped you as you made that transition from maybe the later years of your postdoc into faculty position? Obviously, it's a very tough thing to do for everyone and many people fail to ever do it. What are some tips or recommendations that you found useful as you made that transition? Yeah, so I'd say I came in, I was fortunate to have some funding for this line of research as a postdoc. So transitioning to a faculty position, I had a very clear research trajectory. Like I had these projects mapped out. I knew, you know, I was lucky enough to have a K99. So it was transitioning to the R phase of that award. I knew what project I was going to be doing. And so that was the goal from day one of get that project off the ground and running. In that sense, I was very fortunate. And then I had some other ideas with collaborators that I sort of started to do while I was at Penn State and always knew that I wanted to do. So that was the good opportunity then to lead into those projects. My sense is that it's a lot harder if you don't have that very, I'm going to say focus, but I'm not even sure that's the right word to use, but at least some kind of trajectory for what study or studies you're going to do number one and number two. So I've talked to friends of mine who said, you know, they got to their faculty position and just kind of stared around in wide-eyed wonder with like, I can do anything I want. And I think that sounds great on the surface, but is also just really almost impossibly hard. Like, how do you know what to do first? How do you know what line of research has the most potential to get funded or lead to a series of publications or lead to pilot data. In some ways we just have to get lucky, I guess. But so I, so I guess that's my advice to have an idea very clearly of what you want your first study to be. Jody, I feel like we also texted a lot in the early stages of our, our propositions and um, not to interject here, but I would say like, find your your people that you're going to go through it with. I mean, I, I wasn't applying for postdocs the same time as Jody, but, you know, having your people that you can text and like have beers with, even if it's Zoom beers and be like, oh my God, this is, I'm, we're trying to set up our equipment. Jody and I became really well known among a certain um, 
vendor um, because we were both complaining about equipment not working and we were constantly, te- I got my um, cell phone bills were so high because of all the calls and texts to the States. So it was just me and Jody complaining all the time. But yeah, I think um, having your pals to, to chat with and keep you, keep you going helps, right, Jodes? Absolutely. I think, and that's what I say to the current students in my lab and that one of the things that I was very smart about when I was a postdoc was developing my own peer network, knowing that that was going to come into play down the road for all of the reasons that Charlotte just listed. Also, my very close friend, Anna Stanowitz, was a postdoc with me, with Lacey and Larry. And, you know, we sat 18 inches away from each other for five years. So we did a lot of studies together, which was great. But also, she and I developed our own lines of research. We asked each other, what do you think about this? Probably 18 times a day. I mean, just all of the time. Even now, I talk to her daily. So questions about what do you think about this Ames page? What do you think about this target journal? Should I use this drug? Does this protocol make sense? I don't have any shame at asking those kinds of questions. I think so many people feel that that makes them look inferior or I don't know. They're like, they don't want to say what they don't know, right? So many scientists are just too hoity-toity and it just doesn't work for me. If I don't know something, I'm going to ask the person who knows it. Yeah, I think that's 100% accurate. People feel like it exposes them if they don't know something like, oh, well, clearly you don't know anything then. No, you're 100% accurate there. People (laughs) love to be experts. Like if you have a question about a new technique or a new protocol or this idea that you're kicking around, reach out to, like, there's no planet in which that person is going to respond negatively. Or, I mean, maybe there's a chance they don't respond at all, but I think my experience is that by and large, the people in my network have been nothing but helpful and happy to share their experience and their advice. So Jody, any other advice for an early career scientist looking to make the jump to academia? Following along what I was saying before about having a good idea of what your first one or two studies are going to look like, kind of this trajectory for funding opportunities and publications, is to have an idea of what you need to buy to get your lab up and running and off the ground. And so when I was a postdoc going to conferences, I used to always go through the exhibit hall A lot of them have free candy, which was always a highlight, a pick-me-up, you know, that little sugar rush or other swag that they're giving out. But I thought it was also very good to get my face in their minds. So a lot of equipment is very expensive, but it doesn't, to me at least, doesn't ever hurt to ask these people, you know, like, oh, I'm buying these four different items from you. Is there some kind of package discount or, you know, stuff like that? Also, for some of the smaller companies, so for example, the laser Doppler flow meters that we use in my lab are from More Instruments, which is a fairly small company. And just having that one on one connection to be able to say, like, hey, Tim, this thing broke, or we're getting these weird values. I've sent him screenshots of data that have looked wonky. And he's written back with suggestions of, oh, try calibrating it this way, or, you know, some other troubleshooting tips. Also having a plan to spend your money is also very important. I was fortunate enough to have a nice startup package 
my faculty mentors here at campus are breathing down my neck to spend that money quicker because the university will take it back from me. And it, it's hard to think of spending money when for all of the years in my life, I've been trying to save as much as I can. So that's a, it's a very, I'm still not used to it. I'll never be used to it, but having a plan for spending is important. Yeah, I think that's great advice, especially the uh, the booths at the and the exhibit hall. Because I know personally, as a grad student and as an early postdoc, I avoid those sections like the plague. So maybe I need to be more present there. So Jody, when did you know you wanted to pursue a career in science? Uh, can you talk a little bit about that road, the road to becoming a research scientist where you are today? So I like many healthcare focused people or science focused people. When I was an undergraduate, I wanted to go to medical school. Um, I was on the pre-med track. I took the MCAT. I applied to medical school. I got into medical school and I went to medical school for a year. It was during that year in med school that I just really started to second guess whether that was actually what I wanted to do with my life and my career. So I took a leave of absence and then ended up dropping med school altogether. And then I went and I worked for a few years. Um, I worked for a healthcare technology industry consulting company, and it was fine. Uh, it, it wasn't ever what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, but it was a good landing place after the whole med school experience. Um, I met some of my very dearest friends during that time. So it was a great, you know, early twenties but I always knew I wanted to go back to school eventually. Um, and so I said, oh, let me go get a master's degree and exercise physiology sounds cool. I played sports when I was in high school. I'm still interested in watching sports. I was like, well, exercise is in the word. Let's see what happens. I ended up at the University of Delaware with Bill Farquhar, who I have to give a lot of credit for taking a huge risk on somebody like myself who didn't really have any exercise physiology experience or research experience with human subjects. Um, and so I committed to do my master's with him and it really just went from there. I enjoyed what I was doing. Bill and I have a very good working relationship. I mean, we stay in touch even now. Um, so I really liked working for him. I liked the projects that we were working on. And then, you know, you kind of get into this rut. And I said, okay, now let me get my PhD, which was actually in biological sciences, not, not exercise physiology. And then, you know, your PhD goes along, you're like, well, I guess I'll do this postdoc thing seems like the next, next step. And, and so that's when I went to Penn state, thought I would be there for two years, ended up closer to six. Now here I am. Yeah, that's my, <laughs> that's my science trajectory. I'm hoping to win the lottery. Like As are we all. Yeah. All right, Charlotte, you want to do your questions? Let's do it. Okay, Jody, rapid fire. I've got four amazing questions for you. So question number one, because my papers always go through 10,000 drafts. How many drafts did this paper go through? Rough estimate. I realized this was years in the making. Oh, how many drafts? Like before yeah. I submitted it? Yeah, like if you keep a version counter on your publication. I do. Can I look it up real quick? Yeah, of course you can. Just don't say like four. Oh, you're not three. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
Next question. This better be a better answer. Uh, In my defense, I only, this was a strange paper. I only had two co-authors. Right. So that was only two sets of comments to, to deal with. And you're a good writer. Don't you know what? Don't sell yourself short, Jody. Thank you. Uh, Jody, who's your hero? Do you have a hero? Off the top of my head? My parents? Why? The value they place on education. Jody, that was so nice. They're going to love that. Okay. If you left academia tomorrow, what would you do instead? Well, I say when I was an undergraduate student, I wished I was a political science major. I am fascinated by the train wreck that is the political system in the United States. And I would love to, that's probably what I would try to do, especially now, like some kind of activism related to the quagmire that exists in Washington, DC. And love it. We're a librarian. I love to read. And that seems like I would have less stress if I did that. Two very different directions. <laughs> uh, okay, last question. If you could go back and talk to your first year grad school self, what would you tell yourself? I would tell myself, I, this is a hard one, Charlotte. I would tell myself, like instinctively, I want to say to have more fun, but I had a good bit of fun when I was a graduate student. We had a really great cohort of people in Bill's lab and, and Dave Edwards's lab. The, there were four or five of us. We worked incredibly closely together and had a ton of fun. The whole like work hard, play hard adage. So I don't know if I would say have more fun. I think being less competitive is what I would tell myself. I think it's very easy to, well, in this field, you're constantly comparing yourself against your peers in everything. Even if it's not like a direct comparison, I think it's very hard to escape those feelings of like, ooh, that person has more publications than me, or ooh, that person got a grant funded, or their experiments are going better than mine. And I was not immune from that. So I think like being less competitive and more just a tiny bit more collegial. Lovely, Jody. What would you tell yourself, Charlotte? I would say to have a little bit less fun and get your thesis done and get your papers out. I think every single one of my supervisors over the years would agree with that. They're all still waiting on me, including my PhD supervisor to get a paper out, at least one. Um, It's a miracle I'm here, Jody. It's a miracle I'm here. Well, thank you so much, Jody. This has been just an incredible conversation. I really enjoyed it. I know we all had a lot of fun and I certainly learned a lot about studies I'm less familiar with coming from more of a basic biology background. You're doing really awesome and impactful work, very inspiring for someone like myself who's kind of a few years behind coming up in the ranks. Uh, But thank you so much for being on this episode Behind the Bench and look forward to seeing what you do next. Thanks so much. It was fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of the AJP Heart and Cirque podcast. Our theme music was written and performed by Ray Mitchell. Catch the latest episodes of our podcast at physiology.org slash journal slash AJP Heart.